everyone. We're glad to have you this week as we are continuing in our Christmas series that we started last week. And let me just say, like Clark just mentioned, that if you're a guest with us this morning or if this is kind of your first time being here at Grace, thanks so much for being here. Uh, We count it a privilege that you would spend your Sunday morning um, here with us together. But because you are new, if this is your first week, let me just kind of give you a quick recap into what we've been talking about um, over the course of this series. So last week we began the series and we kind of laid the foundation for the big idea that we are journeying through in this series. And and to do that, to kind of introduce the big idea, we looked at a particular verse in the book of Colossians chapter 2. And so let me just show you that verse real quick up on the screen. In Colossians chapter 2, we looked at this verse as a way of introducing it. And basically, uh, we, we saw this, that it says, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Okay, so we looked at that verse last week. Uh, some of you had different translations if you were with us, and we said some translations say these things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is in Christ, right? And so last week we said the reason that this verse was written, it was written by the Apostle Paul to a particular church in a particular region called Colossae. And the reason that Paul wrote these verses is because he was referring back to the Old Testament Jewish festivals, uh, the Old Testament Jewish holidays that they would celebrate in the feasts. And so the Apostle Paul is basically writing this letter to this church, and he says all of that stuff, all of the Old Testament celebrations and feasts and the holidays that you celebrate, he says those are shadows, Okay. They're, they're shadows, and the reality, the substance, is found in Jesus. And so basically, the reason the Apostle Paul wrote these verses is because he was trying to encourage the church. In fact, in some ways, he was trying to warn them to not chase shadows and totally miss the substance. So he's like, don't, don't make these festivals and these holidays and these celebrations simply about the festivals and the holidays and the celebrations, because it's a shadow. The substance is in Christ. If you're with us last week, what we said is we said that even though we live in a different time, we live in a different place, we live in a different region um, than these people would have back in the book of Colossians, we said that our situation, especially around Christmas time, can be very similar. And here's what I mean. During Christmas, it is very, very, very easy for us to chase shadows, right? It is easy for us to make Christmas about so many other things that have nothing to do with the substance of Christmas. It's easy to make Christmas about the lights and the celebration and the family and the gifts and, the, and all those good things, which, which by the way, those are great things, right? We love those things, but it's easy to make those things kind of the centerpiece of Christmas. And, and, and what we end up doing is we chase shadows and we miss the substance because of course the substance is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the reason uh, that we're doing this series, we said, is because we want to try to together process through Christmas in a healthy and a helpful way. Because it's very easy, it's completely possible to go through this whole holiday season chasing shadows and miss the substance. And so we said, we don't want to do that. And so let's spend this holiday together and process through Christmas in a healthy and helpful way. And what we've been trying to do in this series is we've been trying to show how the shadows that we often chase during this time of the year, the family and the gifts and all that kind of stuff, how those shadows find their substance in Christ, how those things point to Jesus. Now, let me just say that if everything I just said right now is kind of like, you're like, I'm not really sure what you're talking about. That sounds kind of abstract. Let me just encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message. We laid a lot of groundwork. And I think a lot of the things that I just said will make more sense if you check that out. And so if you want to do that, you can. You can go to our website, uh, graceohio.com. Dot org, or you can also download our app. We have an app on the App Store. If you, look for great, if you look for Grace Ohio in the App Store, you will find it. And you can either watch those messages um, or you can subscribe to our podcast if you'd like to. All that is for free. 
and we'd encourage you to do that. But this week, as we kind of progress into the second installment of this series, uh, we want to talk a little bit about how the, the shadow of peace that we often feel this time of year points to the substance of Jesus, okay? And what do I mean by that? Um, well, I think one of the buzzwords that's associated with Christmas, I think we all know this, one of the big buzzwords that's oftentimes um, in conjunction with the Christmas season is the word peace, right? We see it all over the place during this time of the year. Uh, you see it on Christmas cards. We see it on ornaments and decorations. Some of you have this word illuminated in lights somewhere in your house, just the word peace. And there's this correlation oftentimes with the Christmas season and a heightened sense of desire for peace. You hear it in the way we talk. You see it all over, the, all over the decorations and the Christmas stuff. You hear it in the songs that we listen to. I would say that if you turn on the radio and you were to listen to the most popular Christmas songs of all time, right, that for many of those songs, if you were to listen to them, you would hear that there's this theme and this desire for peace. We hear it in the songs that we sing. So, for example, you guys remember John Lennon's song? They still play it to this day. Happy Christmas. War is over, right? And his song is, you know, so this is Christmas, and what have you done? And the whole song is about how, man, we need to eliminate war, and there needs to be peace, because come on, it's Christmas, right? And there's this desire, there's this heightened sense of desire that we have for peace this time of year. Or do you guys remember um, in the 80s? Some of you don't remember because you weren't born. But do you remember, for those of you who were in the 80s, there was that, that, that group called Band Aid. It was kind of like this collaboration. And they came together to try to help alleviate world hunger. And remember the song that they came out? It was Feed the World. You guys remember the next part? Feed the World. Let them know it's what? Christmas time, right? It's Christmas time. And so we need to feed the world. And there's this surge of altruism that is often associated with the Christmas season. Soup kitchens and homeless shelters have more volunteers this month than they do any other month of the year because there's a sense of goodwill among us. We want peace on earth. In fact, you can hear it sometimes in the way that we'll use Christmas time, oftentimes as a reason to give each other the benefit of the doubt. You ever notice this? We'll say, ah, oh, it's Christmas. Eh. You know, eh, it's tis the season, right? And sure, you bump my car in the parking lot and you know, 11 months out of the year, I'd be a jerk about it. But it's Christmas, right? And so no big deal. I'll just let you go. Or uh, I don't usually tip 30%, but, you know, it eh, is the season. And, and we'll use Christmas even as an, as an excuse sometimes, not an excuse, but as a rationale for, um, for just these acts of goodwill and these acts of altruism. It's undeniable that there is a heightened desire for peace that is associated with Christmas. For some of us, we have this with our families. We desire peace in our family, not just in the world. And our family, like, you know what? We're going to put our differences aside and we're going to get together. And I know that, you know, I, me and that person, we don't agree politically. And me and that family member, we've always, we have this thing that we always get in a fight over. But we're going to put it all behind us for at least just one day and we're going to get along, right? Merry Christmas. And we, we kind of get around the table. We have this desire for peace. But here's the thing I've noticed because that's awesome. Peace is a great thing. Who doesn't want peace? But what I've noticed is, and I'm guessing you have too is that oftentimes this heightened desire for peace that we have this time of year is seasonal. And, and when the Christmas season goes away, oftentimes this heightened desire for peace goes along with it. And so many times we say, we're going to put our differences behind us for Christmas. Well, then when Christmas passes and January 1 comes, we get those differences back out and we put them back in the middle, right? And, and, and what does this say then? The, the fact that all of our attempts for peace, regardless of the strong desire that we have, always lead us to the same places again. What does that say then about this desire for peace? Does that say that this is an illusion? Is that what it is? Is this just um, this is a hopeless optimism? Is that what we're dealing with here? 
This is age wishful thinking. Yeah, you desire peace, but everyone knows it ain't really going to happen. Is that what it is? Or, or could it be that that desire that we have for peace this time of year in the world, in our families, in ourselves is actually a shadow that finds its substance in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to try to make a connection for us that the peace that you so strongly desire this time of year, that you're made aware of so strongly this time of year, actually points to its substance. It's a shadow that has, finds substance in the person of Jesus Christ. Like, what are you talking about? Well, let me show you. Grab your Bibles. Let's go to 1 John 3. Okay, so we're going to park ourselves this morning. So 1 John chapter 3. You guys can go ahead and grab your Bibles and get there. If you didn't bring a Bible today, no problem. All right, we have some for you. They're either under your chair or in front of you in the chair rack there. You'll find a black Bible. looks just like the one I have. And uh, in those Bibles, you're going to find 1 John found on page 856. In those Bibles, it's almost all the way towards the end there. So you can go to 1 John um, that way, 856. If you're a smartphone person or a tablet person, you can also access the Bible on your device if you'd like to. Like I said, you can download our app, go to the App Store, search for Grace Ohio, and then you can download that, click on the Medina East Campus, and then all the uh, verses will be there for you. Um, you can check that out. So however you want to get there, go ahead and get there. And I'll also put the verses on the screen. So that way um, everyone's got it in front of them. Now let me just also say that if you're a guest with us this morning and you don't own a Bible, if you just flat out don't own one, would you just do me a favor and just take it? Just take one of ours, make it a gift from us to you. We think it's really, really, really important that you have a Bible. All right, so First John chapter 3. We're going to check out this passage together. We're going to start in verse 4, read down to verse 8. That's where we're going to be going. Okay, First John chapter 3. Here we go. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared, that's Jesus, he appeared, that he might take away our sins. And in him, there is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or knows him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. And the one who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's an interesting Christmas passage, isn't it? Um, It actually reminds me of a conversation I had recently. I had this conversation with a friend of mine. I got a friend who was a paratrooper in the army which, you know, automatically makes him like 50 times cooler than I'll ever be. And, uh, and so we get together every once in a while, and every once in a while when we sit down, we'll share stories about the experiences that we've had in the past. And um, as you can imagine, that's usually pretty lopsided uh, because, you know, he was a paratrooper in the Army. Um, he's a highly decorated soldier. He's seen several com- combat missions. He's actually seen war. And, you know, I am, you know... Bible school student. So it's a little lopsided when we get together and share stories because he'll tell me stories about how he deployed and dropped in behind enemy lines to secure some military target. And I'll tell him stories about, you know, how that one time I had an all-nighter at Bible school. Um, he'll tell me stories about how he survived behind enemy lines and tracked down the bad guy for a week. And I'll tell him stories about, you know, how I survived seminary. And uh, he'll tell me stories about the decorations that he's received and the medals and the honors. And of course, I tell him about, you know, my hat collection uh, because he's just 50 times cooler than I'll ever be, right? And so when we get together and we share stories, he always, I just end up listening 
because his stories are so cool. And so he was telling me, we were getting together, and I was asking him these questions about what it was like to be a paratrooper, and man, how cool was that? And he went on to tell me something I thought was really, really fascinating. He was explaining to me that as a paratrooper in the Army, there are basically three different types of airborne attacks that they engage in. And I thought this was so fascinating, I thought I'd share it with you. So the, the first airborne attack that he mentioned to me is something that's called mass tactical assault mass tactical assault. And I put a picture of what that might look like. Basically, mass tactical assault, he told me, is whenever um, they want to just destroy something in a hurry, mass tactical assault is your answer. And, and so basically what happens is the airplanes will fly at a low altitude, just, he said, just above the tree line, very, very low. And then at the last minute, what, just when they're ready to deploy all the paratroopers, they will pull up to about 450 feet, still very, very low, and then they will proceed to rain down paratroopers onto a particular target. This is crazy. He told me this, and I actually had to have him repeat himself because I was like, did I get that right? He told me they can drop 2,500 paratroopers in 15 seconds. I mean, just like blitzkrieg, right? And, and, and so there's the mass tactical assault. And I was like, that is so crap. I'm like, did you ever do that? He's like, oh yeah. I was like, you are so cool. I am not worthy, you know? And, and he said, but that's not the only kind of mission. He said, there's other ones too. And I said, well, tell me about those. He said, the second kind of airborne attack is something that they call HEY-HO. Okay, now that's an acronym. It stands for high altitude, high opening. And he said, unlike the mass tactical assault, this is not just, a, you don't just drop like a, a mass of paratroopers. He said, this is a specialized team. They fly at a very high altitude, basically to stay away from radar, to eliminate their being detected by radar. And then they deploy the paratroopers at a high altitude and very quickly they deploy their chutes. And, and the reason they do that, they open at a high altitude, is so that way they can quietly and discreetly float into, steer themselves into a particular target. Under canopy, these guys can fly almost 40 miles, up to 40 miles under canopy. So you're talking about mass tactical assault. Like, that is so cool. He's like, then there's like, hey-ho. And I'm like, that's crazy. Then the third one he told me about, at least in my opinion, it just sounds the coolest of them all. He said, the third one is called Halo. He said, in Halo, the Halo mission, what that stands for is high altitude, low opening. And so this is sort of a picture of what that might look like. This is what I thought was so cool. He told me halo missions happen almost exclusively at nighttime. He said halo missions, the whole point of them is that they are discreet and they are quiet and they are landing behind enemy lines and working your way in through the back door. He told me that unlike a mass tactical assault, I thought this was so awesome. He said, rather than just sending, you know, just, just a, a mass of paratroopers on one spot, he said, you spend a specialized team. This is when the Navy SEALs come out. And he said, they drop at a high altitude so that they're not detected by radar. He said, and then they open at a low altitude so as to eliminate time in the air. And they drop in. And he said, if a halo mission is successful, then the enemy doesn't even know they were there. They work from the, from, from the back door to weaken and destroy the enemy. And when my friend was telling me about that, especially when he was telling me about Halo, the thought crossed my mind immediately. I thought to myself, now that is Christmas, right? <laughs> I know that's exactly what you guys were thinking too, right? That's Christmas. Because if you think about it for a minute, when God sent his son to this earth in that manger, it was the beginning of the mission of Jesus Christ coming to destroy something. Jesus Christ came to destroy something. Listen, if I was to ask you, could you summarize Christmas for me in one word? If I was to ask you that, 
you might give me some, some more. You might say peace and salvation and healing and joy. And all those things are good and all those things are right. But there's one word that if you use, not only would it be accurate, but it would also be biblical. And that's this. If someone said one word describe Christmas, you could say, hmm, one word describe Christmas. Um, destruction. And if you said that, you would be accurate and you would be biblical. Destroy to the world, right? And I, I've been trying to convince my wife. I was like, can we just get destruction up in lights somewhere in our house? I think that would be very inviting to the neighbors, right? Destruction, destruction. And you'd be right in saying that. Now, some of you are like, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought that Christmas was about peace. And I thought it was about salvation. I thought it was about healing. And it is, and it is. But think about it for a minute. If you're to say that Christmas is about salvation, then that necessarily implies that there's something that we need to be saved from, right? And if you're, if you're saying that Christmas, Christmas is about healing, then that necessitates, that insinuates that there's a disease that, we need, that needs to be cut out of us, that we need to be cured from. And to say that Christmas is about peace means that there was a state of conflict, there was a state of unrest. There was a time when there was not peace. And so the reason for the season is destruction. Jesus Christ came to destroy. You're like, what are you talking about? 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, some of you guys, I know when I say that, you're like, seriously, is this where we're going? We're talking about a devil now, for real? I mean, isn't that like archaic and regressive? And we as modern people, you know, we, we're over the whole devil, demon thing. We don't buy that anymore, right? So is that what we're talking about? You're talking about a, a devil? You're talking about a guy in a red suit with horns and a tail and a pitchfork? Is that what you're talking about? And, and let me just tell you that um, I'm not real keen on the red suit and the pitchfork and the horns, but if you're talking about what the Bible teaches regarding an evil force, a personality in which evil, sin, and death flow from, then absolutely that's what I'm talking about. And, and let me just say, I know that some of us today, we might struggle with that. We might struggle with the idea of what the Bible teaches about Satan and about demonic forces. But let me just tell you that if you don't accept what the Bible teaches about that, then you have to construct some philosophical worldview that is going to account for why something as beautiful as humanity can do the destructive things that we do to each other. Every single one of us is confronted with the problem of evil in this world. We all have to give some kind of answer for it, whether you're a believer in Jesus or whether you're not, right? The problem of evil is something that we see all the time. We're confronted with it, bombarded with it continually. Man, you just flip on the news and you see it. The problem of evil in this world, my goodness. Click on the news, the protests and the riots and the shootings. And you look at the terrorist attacks and the stuff that's going on, the wars, the sex trade industry, man, women and children sold into slavery to do unspeakably evil things. The evil in this world, we're confronted with it. How do you account for that? You would think that with the intellectual advancement of our modern day society and the educational prowess that we have, that we'd somehow eliminate these problems of evil, but they're still there and they're getting worse. And so you have to account for it. But listen, the evil's not just out there. It's not just out there in the world on the news. Let's be honest. The evil's in here. It's in our living rooms. It's in our family rooms. It comes out during Christmas. We see it. For some of you, that conflict in your family, that, that person you haven't talked to, brother, sister, sibling, aunt, uncle, parent, whoever it is, haven't talked to him in, in years because of some difference that happened back here. And now the bitterness and the resentment and the distance in that relationship of the evil is in our living rooms. 
in your marriage. For some of you right now, your marriage looks more like a battlefield than anything else. It's all-out war. For some of you, it's a cold war in your marriage. Ten years, stale, quiet, cold, no passion, no love. The evil's in our living rooms. The evil's in our family. If we could just be really, really honest, the evil's not just in the world, and it's not just in our living rooms and our family rooms. Let's just get real honest. The evil's in us. We are contributors to this. And I'm the first one to admit it, man. When I read the Bible, you know, the Apostle Paul in one place in the book of Romans, he says, the good I want to do, I can't do. The good I want to do, I can't do. And I'm telling you, if there's one verse I resonate with more in the Bible, it's that one. I'm like, man, Paul, amen. I feel the same way. I want to do the right thing. But I can't even keep my own standards, let alone God's. And, and it's, like, it's almost like there's something at work inside of me. And you see, the Bible would say, the Bible, Christianity asserts that the reason that evil exists in this world is because there is a force behind it and it all flows from the devil. These are all works of the devil. And the Bible tells us that the reason that you and I desire peace so strongly in our hearts and the reason that we desire peace so strongly in our families and in this world is because in the beginning, that's what we've been created for. God created us for peace, man. When you go back to Genesis chapter one and two and you look at the creation of mankind and the creation of this world, the Bible tells us that in the beginning, there was peace. Everything was good. God created everything and it was good and it was good and it was good. And the relationship between God and man was harmonious. And the relationship between mankind and mankind was harmonious. And the relationship between man and the earth was perfect. It was good. There was no evil. There was no death. There was no destruction. There was no disappointment, right? The Browns were probably a good team in that world, but not in this world, right? And the Bible tells us that in Genesis chapter 3, everything shifted and everything changed. And the Bible says that the first humans, our ancestors, Adam and Eve, were in the garden, and the tempter came. That's the devil, the evil one. And the Bible says through deception, he tempted Adam and Eve to rebelling against God and disobeying him. And with that one act of disobedience in Genesis chapter 3, peace was broken. And the world has since been, been underneath the tyranny of the works of the devil. And the Bible is going to go on from this point forward and call the devil the ruler of this world. The Bible is going to call him the prince of the air, the accuser of the brothers, the tempter. The Bible is going to say all these things about who he is. I think it's interesting, uh, C.S. Lewis, some of you uh, probably have heard of him. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia um, and several other apologetic books defending the Christian faith. He was a very intellectual man. He was um, an Oxford Don and was an atheist. And then at his time at Oxford, he actually became a Christian um, through his friend J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings. And uh, as he began to read the Bible, C.S. Lewis found himself um, really struck by one particular aspect of what the Bible taught. And I just want to read a quote from him in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who is held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. Christianity thinks that this dark power was created by God and it was good, and then uh, good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity agrees with dualism, that the, war is at war, that the world is at war, but it does not think that this is a war between independent powers. It thinks it's a civil war, a rebellion, and that we're living in a part of the universe that is occupied by the rebel. Sounds like Star Wars, right? Enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. 
and what Lewis is pointing out is what the Bible is also asserting is that we currently live underneath the, the works of the devil, the works of the enemy, Satan, sin, and death. Right? The whole earth is subjected to this frustration from what happened in Genesis chapter 3. So what did God do? What was God's response when Genesis chapter 3 took place? What was God's response when humanity rebelled against God? Was God's response to go, you know what, you guys? I tried and you failed and it's over. Is that God's response? Was he like, I give up on you. I'm going to leave the earth to its own devices. You guys just spiral yourself out of control. I'm going to the other side of the universe and I'm doing a new world, right? This one's going to look like Avatar, like the movie Avatar. Is that what God did? Did God just say, oh, you know what? You know what? You guys messed it all up. And so you know what? You're going to have to save yourself now. You got yourself into that mess, you're going to need to get yourself out. And so by sheer humanitarian effort, man, you just make peace happen. And then once you get it together, you call me and I'll come back. Is that what God did? No, because listen, God, our heavenly father, knew that there was no way that we could break this slavery that we were in. And so what was God's response? What was his play? God's solution was to send a savior, man. To send a savior. And Jesus Christ came the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil and to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Listen, I don't know if the night when Jesus Christ was born, if it was a silent night, like the song says, I don't know that. I don't, I don't know if all was calm when Jesus was born. But let me just tell you, don't be fooled by the gentle demeanor of the nativity scene because every nativity scene is a snapshot of an invasion. Every nativity scene is a picture, is a snapshot of a deployment, boots on the ground from the greatest halo mission this universe has ever seen. High altitude. The Bible says that Jesus Christ came from the highest altitude. That he was at the right hand of the fathers in Philippians chapter two tells us that he sat with God. And the Bible says he left the luxuries of heaven and low opening. Jesus came in the lowest form, the most humble opening imaginable. Think about it. He was born into Bethlehem. Bethlehem, a nobody town, a podunk city. Jesus wasn't born into some capital city. He wasn't born into some place that was the epicenter of intellectualism and education. He wasn't born into some politically powerful place. He wasn't born into that. He was born into Bethlehem, podunk little town. He was born in a borrowed manger, not a palace. He was born into a blue-collar family with a teenage mother, and he flew low, low, low. And why? Why? Because like every halo mission, Jesus came discreetly. And like every halo mission, he came with a purpose, man. Laser-focused on his work because he came to destroy the works of the devil. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus Christ initiated his ministry at age 30, that he went forward to do damage to the kingdom of hell. The Bible tells us, in fact, I think it's kind of funny. I don't know if it's supposed to be, but I think it is. Whenever you read through the New Testament, one of the things that always stuck out to me is that as Jesus is doing his ministry, um, every time he encounters a demonic force or a demon-possessed person, the response of the demons is always the same when they see Jesus. You know what they do? They're terrified. They scream in terror when they see Christ. In fact, there's one spot 
I love this, man. If you don't read the New Testament, you need to. It's just awesome. But there's one spot in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 8. The Bible tells us that Jesus is walking through a particular region. I don't, I don't know if he walked like this, but I'm guessing he did. And he was going through this region, and the Bible says that there was these two demon-possessed men that were in this region, and they were so severely possessed that they were so violent that no one dared pass them at the expense that they would get beat up by these two guys. They actually lived in a graveyard. How evil is that? So these two guys, these two demon-possessed guys are there, and no one's walking past them, and Jesus walks past them. And you know what they say when they see Jesus, the demons inside of these men? They shout out, and here's what they say. They say, son of God, have you come to destroy us before our time? It was, it was as if they were saying, look, we know there's a beatdown coming. We just thought maybe you were early, right? They knew. They were terrified, terrified of Jesus. I think for many of us, one of our greatest nightmares is to see a demon. Every demon's greatest nightmare is to see Jesus. Like if you have a weak picture of Jesus in your mind, you need to get rid of that, all right? He came to destroy the works of the devil. And the demons were terrified of him. They shouted out. There's another place. I love this. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is talking to a guy, and the guy's like, hey, you know, Jesus, what's your kingdom like? What are you all about? Like, why'd you come? Basically was his question. And Jesus said, uh, let me give you a little parable to help explain, like, what I'm all about and why I'm here. He said, so... Um, once upon a time, there was a strong man, really, really strong dude, and he had a house with a bunch of stuff in it, and no one could take it because the guy was strong, and no one could beat him up. He said, but then one day, a stronger man appeared, and he beat that dude up, and he took all of his gear. He's like, that's what I'm like. That, that, that's what my thing is. And, and here's what Jesus was saying. He was like, the devil is the strong man who's, held, who's holding us in captivity to the works of the devil. He says, I'm the stronger man who's come back to destroy the works of the devil and take back what's mine. That's what I'm about. The Bible says each step of his ministry, he weakened the, 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 the works of the devil. He weakened, he weakened until finally it all culminated to one crushing blow when Jesus destroyed the works of the devil. How'd he do it? Hebrews chapter two, I'll put it on the screen. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, that's Jesus, shared in their humanity. What's that mean? Let me just explain that real quick. It means that Jesus Christ took on flesh, that he became human just as we are human. Look at this. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. The Bible tells us that that baby came, the baby in the manger grew to be the man on the cross. When Jesus Christ spread his arms and he took our sin on himself and he went down into death and ultimately came up and defeated it once and for all, that in that one move, he crushed the head of the serpent and he destroyed the works of the devil. Colossians chapter two is gonna say he disarmed the powers of the devil in that one move. The reason for the season is destruction, man. It's Jesus came to destroy and it's through that destruction that we can find peace. So what does this mean? Well, let me just close with a couple thoughts and then we'll be done. But it means a couple things at least. It means this. It means that that desire that you have in your heart for peace, that, 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 that heightened sense of, um, of a desire to see peace in this world and to see peace in your family and to see peace in your own heart, peace from your struggles, peace from your addictions, 
peace from the things that you can't seem to overcome, the peace that you're trying to find in so many other things and you can't seem to find it, what, what it means is this, is that the only way we really get peace is through Jesus. He is the substance to that shadow. He's the only way. That means that peace doesn't come from within. It's not like I can just generate and manufacture peace on my own. I can't do that. I don't have the power to do that. We don't have the power to do that. Humanitarianism is not the answer. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying we shouldn't love people and care for, not at all, not at all. But I'm saying that's not the way to peace. Because the Bible says that if we want to experience true peace, that means that something has to be destroyed. And that's what Christ came to do. And so real peace is only found in Jesus. It's only found in him. It's only found in Christ. Some of you, this begs an important question too, because some of you might be thinking to yourself, okay, that's cool. So if Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, so he came to destroy Satan, sin, and death, then real simple question, why is there still sin and evil in the world if that's what Jesus came to do? That's a great question. In fact, some of you, you maybe were troubled a little bit when we read uh, from this passage earlier. You may have noticed verse six, which I'll just refer to again. In verse six, in 1 John, he says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen, seen him or known him. And some of you, when you hear that, that no one who lives in Christ keeps on sinning, some of you are like, uh, well, that's kind of a problem. Because I may have sinned recently. Like this morning. You're like, dude, it was the only way I could get the kids in the van. I had to figure out something, right? And, and... Look, I, I just want to, let me just set you at rest there a little bit. Uh, we don't have time to get into all of it, but there'll be another sermon. But um, you don't have to go very far in the book of First John to realize that what John is not saying is that if you're a Christian, that means you're not a sinner or that you're without sin. That's not the case at all. In fact, in First John chapter 1, a couple chapters earlier to this, uh, John says this. He says that if you claim to be without sin, you make God out to be a liar, and his word has no place in your life. And so that means that if you say, I'm without sin, you're a liar, which is a sin. That's what John says, right? And so what's he getting at here then? What's he talking about? Well, well here, here, here's what he's getting at in a nutshell. First John points out to us that there is a difference between struggling with sin, which is what all of us do, None of us are exempt. We all struggle with sin. While we're here on this earth, until Christ comes back, we will struggle with sin. There's a difference between struggling with sin and continuing in sin. Very different to dwell in and continue in sin. Struggling with sin looks like this. God, I hate that this thing is in my life. I hate it. And there's moments of weakness and there's moments of trial and I give into temptation. I got this thing in my life and I want to overcome it, but God, I hate it. I hate it. I beg you to destroy. I want you to get rid of this thing. I am not content with this here. That's struggling with sin. Continuing sin looks like this. You know, God doesn't want you to do that. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Whatever. Right? And I'm just saying, look, if, you, if you're struggling with sin, if you're, if you're struggling with sin, I think that's a good sign that you're alive. The Holy Spirit is in you. And that Jesus is trying to destroy those works of the devil in your life. But if you're like, eh, I don't care, whatever. Everything you've been saying is just blah, 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 blah. I'm like, dude, you ought to be concerned about that. You ought to be concerned about that, right? Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And the Bible tells us that we live in an interesting time for those of us who follow Jesus, that we live in a transitionary transitionary period before Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. The Bible says that Jesus' first coming was like a halo mission. 
It came in discreetly. He came in quietly. It says that his second coming is like a, it's like a blitz, man. It's like the mass tactical assault. Just read the book of Revelation, right? But in between, the Bible says that we, those who follow Jesus, we live behind enemy lines. And what that means for us is a couple things. It means this, that if we put our hope in Jesus Christ, our victory is certain. Our peace is secured. And Jesus is going to start destroying the works of the devil until one day it's done in its finality. We live in an already not yet tension, right? But it also means this. For those of us who follow Christ, it also means that in the meantime, that Jesus has also commissioned us to the same mission that he was on. That as Christ's followers, we too join Jesus in destroying the works of the devil. Now, how do we do it? We do it with the love that he gave us with the gospel of Jesus, the message about Jesus that he's entrusted us with, that the spirit of God, the forgiveness of sins that he's given, it enables us to turn and forgive the sins of others who have sinned against us. And so the Bible says that now, for those of us who follow Christ, we are ambassadors of this new kingdom and we work with the same commission that Jesus came to do. We destroy the works of the devil with the love and the good works and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We usher in the peace of God. And so we join him on his mission. And lastly, if you're a person that's investigating Jesus, you're like, I don't even know if I buy this stuff, man, but God and Jesus, I'm just still investigating. Maybe for the first time today as we were talking, Christmas made sense to you. All of a sudden, you're like, that's why he came. That's the substance of Christmas. That's what it's all about. And maybe for you, it dawned on you. And if that's the case, let me just tell you, man, the peace that Jesus came to bring is for you. And maybe for the first time, man, you embrace Christ. Make him your savior. Embrace him as your savior. But listen, if you embrace Jesus Christ as your savior, that means that you also have to embrace him as a destroyer because he wants to destroy the works of the devil in your life, in your heart, and in your family and bring us to the peace that he's created us for. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, you're so good to us. And when you came, you came to destroy the works of the devil. I don't know what to say, God, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing what I couldn't do. I can't save myself. God, we can't save ourselves. We don't have it in us. We're not that strong. But Jesus, when you landed here on this earth, you came behind enemy lines our soul felt its worth because we realized that you hadn't abandoned us. You didn't leave us. You came. You humbled yourself in the greatest halo mission the universe has ever seen. And Father, you are destroying the works of the devil even up to this very day. So God, I pray that the peace that we're yearning for and we're longing for this holiday season, that we wouldn't chase a shadow and we would miss the substance. But the reason for this season is that you came to destroy the works of the devil, to bring peace into our lives, to reconcile man and God, God and sinner reconciled. And so, Father, I pray that as we go from this place, you give us faith. Fill us with faith. Fill us with power. Fill us with the hope of what Christmas really brings. The substance of Christmas is you. And so, Jesus, as we go from this place, I pray that you would encourage our hearts, bring faith to our hearts. And God, I ask you that you would help us to be, for those of us who do follow you, help us to be beacons of light in a dark world. Help us to be ambassadors of the peace that you came to bring to us. And so we pray that you'd help us to do this in Christ's name. Amen.